Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. Today on the show, we're celebrating the 53rd anniversary of the Shag Harbor UFO crash landing. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. It's a small fishing village in a modest Canadian province. It's not a place you would expect to host one of the most well-documented UFO incidents of all time. Yet, in October of 1967, Shag Harbor became the Canadian equivalent of the historically omnipresent Roswell incident. On this 53rd anniversary of this Canadian incident, let's take a look back at just exactly what happened in the waters of Shag Harbor its relevance, and eerie similarities to the Navy UFO encounters in recent years, and where this case lay in the annals of UFO history. It was October 4th, 1967. At approximately 7.15pm, Air Canada Flight 305 pilots, Captain Pierre Charbonneau, and First Officer Robert Ralph were flying above Quebec about 180 miles west of Nova Scotia. Everything was perfectly routine until they noticed something trailing their plane. They witnessed a massive rectangular-shaped object, orange in color, gliding through the skies. Trailing the rectangle were small orange orbs that seemed almost like a tail to the main object. The pilots watched with growing concern for several minutes when, suddenly, there was some sort of explosion near the rectangle. A large white cloud was left behind, sporadically changing colors from red to blue. Two minutes later, another explosion occurred, leaving behind a similar cloud of colors. The pilots watched in amazement as the small orbs swarmed around the rectangle and, along with it, descended into a thick cloud cover and disappeared out of sight. Both pilots, visibly shaken, reported the incident when they finally landed 
Meanwhile, back on the ground, residents of Shag Harbor would report seeing four orange lights in tight formation, flashing in rapid sequence across the night sky. A group of teens that were out fishing noticed that the lights were making a brisk descent towards the water, but instead of disappearing into the murky depths, the lights seemed to float effortlessly on the surface before disappearing into the water. One of those teens was Lori Wilkins. Here he is describing what he and his friends saw that night many years ago in the Nova Scotia skies. It was in the evening, somewhere around 10.30. We were going up through roughly where we are now, here in Shag Harbor, and we noticed some lights, and they would have been from here up that way across the road. No long, I don't know, can't remember what we noticed at first, but they, they were going in sequence. One would be on, and two, and three, then four. They'd all be on for a second. They'd all go off. And it, that sequence seemed to start over again. And as we was driving along, it seemed to be going along with us. Can't tell how high it was or how far, but it was high enough in the sky to be invisible. And as we drove along, it, like I said, it seemed to go along with us. And then as we got up towards where the school is now, it seemed to take a 45 degree angle from going along level to tipping down. And if we was, then we had to turn and go more or less north. We was going west along the highway by the school. And we come to where there was a hill and there was a low place. And if we was coming up the hill as the light was going down, just before we made the top of the hill, we lost sight of it. And then when we got the top of the hill, we could see the light in the water. In the meantime, we thought it was a plane had crashed, so we went and called the RCMB from a phone booth in Woods Harbor. And he more or less didn't believe us. And the first thing he asked me is what we were drinking. I said, we had it then. <laughs> So anyhow, we did get the phone number from where the phone booth was, and I went to get in the car to eat, and the phone rang. And that's when he asked me where we could meet, where we see it at, or where we could meet. I told him what we call the Moss Plant. That's where the little site is that they got set up after the UFO thing now. So we drove back down there, and we got there. We could still see the light in the water, and it was more or less drifting down with the tide. And we must have been there five to seven minutes before the RCMP got there. There was four people, three other people with me in the car. So as we watched it drift in, and when the RCMP got there, there were two cars. One come first, then the second one. There was two in one and one in the other, but I can't remember how far apart them cars were, people getting there. Negative watching, there were a few more people coming. As we watched it drift in, we had to walk to the top of the hill. Then we must have watched it 20 minutes roughly all together, then it just disappeared in the light minute. In the meantime, they'd call the clock tower the, for the Coast Guard to come, and some local fishermen here who'd seen it had gone and got in their boat or heard about it and went out and looked, started to look to see if there was any wreckage or anything, and we never seen nothing. And anyhow, so the next day, now that night, the black car, the ghost car, kind of then it was the 101 coming to Prospect Point. I got in aboard that and went out. Me and some of the Mounties, we went out to look, see if we could find anything. We've seen no wreckage of no whatsoever. So. Another witness who'd been fishing quickly phoned the RCMP to report the crash of an aircraft. The police dispatcher brushed off the young man, believing him to have been inebriated. But soon, 
Over a dozen other calls flooded the station. Police immediately went out to investigate. Unbeknownst to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Constable Ron Pound was patrolling an area near the alleged incident. He witnessed the four orange lights moving at tremendous speeds. As he himself sped up his vehicle, he believed the four lights to all be connected to a single aircraft, and estimated it to be about 60 feet in length. He reached the shoreline, where he was soon joined by fellow officers, Police Corporal Victor Werbicki and Constable Ron O'Brien. Along with over 30 other witnesses, they all watched as the orange lights slowly changed to a yellowish tint and moved eerily slow across the surface of the water, leaving a similar yellowish-colored foam in its wake. Some witnesses claimed to have seen the actual structure of the object, reporting it as dome-shaped. Due to the exhaustive dedication by MUFON investigators Chris Stiles and Don Ledger, they were able to compile a list of first-hand witnesses and individuals involved with the search and recovery efforts. What follows appears to be the most accurate timeline according to their research. The Canadian Coast Guard was called to the scene, but before they could arrive, two RCMP officers had already secured local fishermen's boats and headed towards the area for a possible search and rescue mission. The lights were no longer visible, but the yellow foam remained. The officers and fishermen who assisted all said that the foam was like no sea foam they'd ever seen before, much thicker than anything that could be caused naturally. They had to cut their way through it just to look for survivors of the supposed crash landing. After several hours of searching, nothing could be found. The RCMP, along with the Coast Guard, contacted their local NORAD station and the Rescue Coordination Center, asking if there'd been any reports that evening of a missing aircraft, either civilian or military. They had nothing. The following morning of October 5th, the Canadian Forces Headquarters sent out specially trained divers from the Navy and RCMP to systematically search the seabed in the alleged area where the crash had occurred. They searched for several days, but found absolutely nothing. Local newspapers began to circulate speculative theories of a Russian spacecraft, submarine, or spy satellite being the enigmatic culprit. There were also rumors that the United States had launched their own investigation into the incident. On October 9th, five days after the mysterious object sank off the shoreline and into the abyss, the search for the craft in the water had been called off, after extensive efforts turned up nothing. Of course, some will argue that evidence could have been found and was concealed from the public eye, which is somewhat plausible especially when one considers the fact that there was a secret U.S. military base monitoring subterranean and underwater frequencies for Russian submarine activity just 30 minutes from the crash site. The search for the UFO at Shag Harbor was conducted during a highly charged period in Canada's history. The space race was on, and so was the Cold War. Russian submarines were known to frequent the East Coast, 
and the Americans were testing all manners of devices to spy on their common foes, including crude spy satellites that ejected film canisters at high altitudes. While the official records provide no explanation for what happened, there are vague clues pointing to another incident about 50 kilometers north, just off the coast of Shelburne. In his co-author 2001 book, Dark Object, Chris Stiles says he eventually interviewed former military insiders and members of the Navy's fleet diving unit, who told him the orange orb spotted in Shag Harbor had submerged under its own power and traveled to a spot on the seabed off Shelburne. At the time, the area was the location for a top-secret military base, disguised as an oceanic institute. What I was being told by the former military uh, staff that were involved in the search effort was that while a search was going on in the Sound at Shag Harbor, military personnel already knew that the object was no longer there on the seabed, that it had moved away under the water, rounded Cape Sable Island, had gone up the coast and come to rest on the seabed off the uh, coast of Government Point, which was the location of CFS Shelburne. Canada's most secret military base. The facility used underwater microphones and magnetic detection devices to track enemy submarines, but its true purpose wasn't revealed until the 1980s. But when it came to the Shag Harbor UFO incident, this area, known as Government Point, seemed to be yet another place where the UFO made its temporary underwater home. Slowly, the headlines made their way to the back of the newspapers and soon faded into obscurity, as most UFO cases often do. But this certainly wouldn't be the last we would hear of the Shag Harbor UFO story. In 2018, it was announced that Celine Cousteau and Fabian Cousteau, grandchildren of Jacques Cousteau, were heading to Nova Scotia to investigate the incident. As part of their visit, their investigative team would carry out an underwater search to try to locate the craft that could possibly still sit at the bottom of the water. While their deep-sea investigation did not yield a craft or materials, anomalous activity was recorded between their radio transmissions while underwater when in proximity to where the craft was said to have submerged. And even though this new generation of Castos couldn't crack the case, the fact that their investigation revealed other anomalous activity is yet another layer of unexplained phenomena that could be attributed to whatever happened in 1967. And as for anomalies, it should be noted that other weird phenomena has occurred in the area where the object was said to have submerged. Diver David Svet had been surveying the ocean floor of the Shag Harbor for years and claimed he's discovered underwater anomalies, or depressions, in the area where the crash is said to have taken place. The depressions appeared like a dinner plate, with the center being about a foot deep and perfectly round. The covering of this depression was comprised of pebbles, two to four centimeters in size, but there was no sizable rocks or plants in the area. No sea life either. It looked as though the entire area had been swept clear 
Also, in his own personal research, Chris Stiles was even able to obtain several official documents through the Canadian version of the Freedom of Information Act. One of these documents came from the Canadian Armed Forces, which stated, quote, The Rescue Coordination Center conducted preliminary investigation and discounted the possibilities that the sighting was produced by an aircraft, flare, or any other known objects, end quote. This, along with witness testimony reports through the RCMP and the Department of National Defense, convinced Stiles that something, or some things, were indeed recovered in the waters. Perhaps the most compelling development in the Shag Harbor incident is its striking resemblance to the now-famous Tic Tac UFO incident. During a routine training mission in 2004 off the coast of California, Commander David Fravor, a Navy squadron leader, was ordered to intercept an unidentified object caught on radar. While trying to visually investigate this object, which he described as being shaped like a tic-tac, he watched in amazement as the object performed extremely unconventional maneuvers. Reacting to Fravor's pursuit, the object descended from 80,000 feet in altitude to 20,000 feet near the surface of the ocean, and then shot back up to 65,000 feet within seven seconds, disappearing completely out of sight. While the Tic Tac UFO and its incredible maneuvers were compelling enough, what Fravor described next was what moved this to not just a UFO, but a possible unidentified submerged object as well. In an exclusive interview with investigative reporter George Knapp, Fravor explained that, quote, It created a disturbance on the water, uncharacteristic of a helicopter or plane. You, you watched it for more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. You saw it as close as anybody got, and it was doing something really strange over a disturbance in the water. Yes. Was there something in the water? We don't know. So here's what it is. I'll say what drew us to it is there was, it was a perfectly calm blue ocean day, no white caps, and there was white water. The white water was kind of in the shape of, you can call it a cross, but about the size of a 737. So take the 737, drop it, and you'll look at it from the top and point it to the east, and we're down to the south of it. Um, that's what the white water looked like. And the Tic Tac was moving around that white water. So we didn't see if there was something below the surface. Because, you know, if it's 10, 15 feet below the surface, it's still going to cause the waves, those swells, to break over the top of it like a seamount. So we didn't, we didn't see anything below. We just know there was something causing that water to break over the top of it on a perfectly, like a pristine, spectacular San Diego day is what it was. As if it was docking or interacting with Don't know. something? Don't you know. We, you know, know. We first came back, so what was it doing? Was it trying? Was it, was it interacting? Because obviously we talked. When we turned around, we couldn't find the disturbance in the water anymore. It was gone. So... You know, normally if it's a real seamount, it's going to be there until, you know, God removes it. So in this case, I go, we said, you know, it went, well, was it communicating? I don't know. I really don't know, but it could have been. So the real question remains, was there a submerged object either connected to the Tic Tac UFO or literally controlling it? We may never truly know the answer to this question, but we can find similarities with actions taken by the Tic Tac UFO and the object witnessed in Shag Harbor. In fact, the event in Nova Scotia meets at least one of the traits laid out. 
by the former director of the once secret Pentagon UFO program, Luis Elizondo. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Under the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, Elizondo compiled a list of incredible capabilities commonly associated with UFO sightings. He called these traits the five observables. As stated on the To The Stars Academy website, they include 1. Sudden and instantaneous acceleration. 2. Hypersonic velocities without signatures. 3. Low observability. 4. Transmedium travel. And 5. Positive lift. If we are to observe the actions of the Shag Harbor objects, it most certainly hits number four, transmedium travel. Everything we build is purpose-specific for its environment. A plane looks like a plane, has wings, has engines, has a rudder, has a nose, because it has to be aerodynamic. Yet here's an object that can operate just as easily in atmosphere, in space, and potentially even underwater, and yet it doesn't change its design characteristics. What type of technology could allow that. Any one of these, mind you, would be an absolute game changer for any foreign adversary to have. Just one of them, it would be a game changer. This and several other observables make the Shag Harbor object most certainly an enigma. And while its performance may have in fact been compromised that day in the skies, and eventually in the waters of Nova Scotia, it begs for continued investigation, both by the United States and its northern neighbor. While it remains a mystery, the Shag Harbor incident lives on permanently at the Shag Harbor Interpretive Center. This welcoming center chronicles the sighting in great detail, allowing visitors to view television documentaries, newspaper articles, and an impressive exhibit on outer space. It's quite clear that Canada is not done with this case, and neither are the rest of us. Every year, thousands of people from all over the world 
make a trek to Shag Harbor, grab some lunch, and take in the Interpretive Center. The town also hosts an amazing annual conference, inviting speakers from all over the world to talk about UFOs, and of course, the Shag Harbor incident. Yours truly was supposed to speak at this year's Shag Harbor UFO Expo, but then the world kinda went on lockdown. So I'm looking forward to speaking in Shag Harbor in the fall of 2021, and I hope to see all of you there. It is definitely worth the trip. So what can truly be said about the Shag Harbor incident? The extraordinary testimonies given to Chris Stiles and Don Ledger were said to be highly credible. However, their names remain confidential to protect them from possible threat or security oaths by many of the military involvement. Therefore, the aforementioned information, just like most witness testimony by military and authority figures, was given off the record. No matter the case, something extremely strange occurred in Shag Harbor on that dark, cold night. It remains one of the most compelling UFO cases of all time, only bringing forth more questions than answers. It's left even the most skeptical minds scratching their heads. It could perhaps be best summarized with a quote from the October 14th editorial from the Chronicle Herald. Imagination or natural phenomena seem to be the weakest of explanations. It has been a tough week for skeptics. Here is primary investigator Chris Stiles commenting on the Shag Harper incident. Several scientists have suggested over the years that UFO advocates should call attention to a single case, one so strong that it can stand up to scientific scrutiny and be established, after all, as a true extraordinary event. I'm not sure that this is the best approach, but I'm comfortable with it. And I'm sure that science is supposed to conclude or do what it would with such a case. However, I believe that the Shag Harbor incident does fit the bill. I don't believe that it's the only possible candidate, but it's probably one of the safest potential UFO cases that could be nominated for such special status. Here's why. Something did happen on the night of October the 4th, 1967. The eyewitnesses know this, the three RCMP officers and the authorities who were there on scene and who saw the UFO on the water, they all know this. Many UFO skeptics, including the late debunker Philip Glass, have quietly conceded to me that something extraordinary happened on that fall night so many years ago. The remaining eyewitnesses have moved on with their lives as best they can. Most of the active and serious UFO community busies itself with the latest point of origin theory or research gossip, and yet the Shag Harbor incident remains a mystery. It has steadily gained notoriety and consideration since I began my reinvestigation of the case back in 1992. The Shag Harbor incident has refused to evaporate. No one has recanted their essential testimony. New witnesses and interpretations have appeared over the years, and they've only served to enhance our understanding of the case. The incident has even secured its place as part of Canadian history. The National Archives of Canada website has an entry on the Shag Harbor incident, where visitors can also see an archived UFO report. Significantly, the principal ent entry reads, both the RCMP and locals have rushed to the shore of the harbor, but what they encountered there was far from a conventional aircraft. 
That page concludes with the further determination that the Department of National Defense has identified the sighting as unsolved. Those statements are consistent several decades later with the initial impressions of the investigating agencies. I would continue to point out that the Shag Harbor incident remains the world's only UFO crash scenario that is supported in this interpretation by government documents that are freely available and they're entirely without controversy as to their origin or authenticity. To my mind, the Shag Harbor incident remains one of the most compelling arguments in the world today for what I would consider UFO reality. Also, is sort of an addendum to this episode, I wanted to invite Jordan Bonaparte, host of the Nighttime Podcast, to come on and give his thoughts on the case, being a Nova Scotia resident himself. So I'm going to leave you here with one of the nicest and most talented podcast hosts out there today, Jordan Bonaparte. Hello, Ryan. Jordan from the Nighttime Podcast here. You had told me about uh, your plans to do an episode celebrating the now 53rd anniversary of the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Now, with myself as a Canadian who lives very near Shag Harbor and who follows UFO stories, specifically the Shag Harbor story, very closely, I thought I'd send you a voice memo to tell you a little bit about what I know about the sighting and my experiences looking into it for my show, or I've covered it several times and was fortunate to have met a lot of a lot of the eyewitnesses and some of the main researchers associated with it. So as as a Canadian involved in the UFO phenomenon, I can easily easily say Shag Harbor is one of the two main UFO sightings we have that people look to as, you know, the biggest in Canada. On the west coast of Canada, there was the Falcon Lake UFO incident. On the east coast of Canada, where I am, there's the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Both happened within only a, a short amount of time, I believe about a year in, in the difference between the two of them. But the Shag Harbor UFO incident, at least in my opinion, is the the most reputable, the most fascinating, and just the most noteworthy UFO incident, in my opinion as well, not just in Canada, in the world. And the reason for that is, in this case, in Shag Harbor, it's it's not a group of two guys who saw it, or you know, two separate groups of three that saw it. It's it's a community that that saw this when the lights flew over Shag Harbor and seemingly crashed into the waters. Th- there were people all over that community that that noticed it. They all, you know, a lot of them all went to the waterfront where the where the object was thought to have crashed into and where lights were visible a crowd gathered there of citizens and they watched the lights they were there as the coast as you know the searchers arrived and some of them even you know uh, banded together and hopped on fishing boats and went over the over to where the lights were seen in the water thinking that they were going to be approaching the scene of like an aircraft accident or something but Again, as I'm sure you'll get into in your episode, all they really found over there was some odd yellow foam that was said to have a sulfuric smell to it. But anyway, when you get into the UFO sightings and events, so seldom is there any kind of physical evidence. And because of that, we're left looking to the eyewitness accounts and gauging the 
you know, the, the reputation of, of the witness and, you know, monitoring their story over the years to see if there's any changes in it that may indicate, you know, maybe um, uh, either dishonesty or exaggeration. In Shag Harbor, you don't have that. The witnesses who were there that night in 67, in a lot of cases, they're still living in Shag Harbor. They attend the annual UFO con- convention that's put on there, the UFO festival in Shag Harbor. And they've been telling the same story for years. And all they really want is both some people to believe them and take it seriously, but also they just want an explanation for what had happened. I, I've been fortunate where, again, I live near there. I, I went to the UFO festival, I think the last five or six years. I was a speaker at last year's when... I'm sure you're aware of this, but the Royal Canadian Mint issued a um, commemorative coin that was celebrating the, uh, the the UFO event. So the last year's festival was there was a lot of publicity surrounding it, mainly because of the release of this coin, which is quite quite spectacular. But um, anyway, at the at the UFO festivals, you have those same witnesses. Uh, they want belief. They want someone to explain to them what 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 had happened. And their stories haven't changed. There's very little exaggeration, but when you meet these people, it's not like going to... Again, I'll try to paint the picture as someone who's been to the UFO Festival in Shag Harbor a lot. It's You drive to the middle of nowhere, and it's this tiny little fishing community that you're almost like... When you get there, it's so far away from anything of you know that you would expect to go to if you come to Nova Scotia as a tourist let's say you're driving so far away from that it's almost when you get to Shag Harbor you would almost question why people even live way out there but what you do find is a odd looking yellow building with like a sign on the front of it that says UFO Museum and then there's a little spot where there's a on the side like on the shoreline where there's a, a sign show you know pointing over there saying that this is the site of the UFO sighting of 67 but it's it's a really cool place, and when you go to the UFO conventions there, it's just at like the, the kind of a community hall where you'd expect a bingo game or something. But when you get in there, it's not like a Star Trek convention or something with all these strange sci-fi kind of things happening. You see, and much like the, I guess the crowd that would be at a bingo game, you just see all members of the community in there. They all have a story about the night you know the UFO flew over and crashed into the water. They're not really. They're not trying to capitalize on it um, financially. Uh, they're just there to tell their story, and it's almost like it's almost like going to like an like a AA meeting, except instead of them sharing the story of you know how they started drinking or something, it's you know the story of you know my dad. He to his dying day swore he saw it that night, or you know, or I was a little kid and I saw it and I've never gotten over it. So it's. The people who listen to your show that are that are really like the the UFO heads, like they gotta make a pilgrimage to Nova Scotia and attend this convention. Because I've been to a lot of UFO conventions that seem more interested in selling product and promoting ideas and this sort of thing, or or promoting TV shows or specific groups or something. The Shag Harbor UFO F- Festival is the most sincere and genuine where it is absolutely just a, a an event where 
the eyewitnesses are there and the community is there and they're just celebrating slash leaning on each other with the story. So it's, it's a cool spot. But yeah, I guess for me, what makes it so fascinating is how many people saw it, how there's no explanation for it. It's there's a, there's a lot of theories. Some people think it was flares that were maybe being tested. Some people think it could have been a um, uh, a satellite just passing uh, through the sky that just kind of tricked them. Then there's the you probably know more about this if you read too deep if you read deep into Shag Harbor. But I th- I think it was called the Corona satellite, which was a uh, intelligence satellite used during the Cold War that as it um, as it made its way around Earth when it went over like Russia was taking photos and you know back in 67 the photos that it'd be taking are on film of course and then when it makes its way back around this part of the world where I am in Nova Scotia it would drop these these canisters of the film negatives it would land into the water and a submarine would pick it up and develop it and they would use that to get intelligence during the Cold War. Uh, there's a, a lot of people theorize that the whole Shag Harbor UFO incident may have just been people watching the um, the Corona satellite drop its, uh, its film uh, canisters or whatnot, which I believe would have been accompanied by a flare to allow the... Um, the submarine to collect it. But if you ask Lori Wickens, who is the main eyewitness for Shag Harbor, the, I say the main eyewitness because he was the first one to call the police and he's the one most often people will, will cite when talking about this sighting. But if you ask him or any of the other men or women that saw this, I haven't met one of them who actually saw it who said, ah, I agree, it was, you know, a satellite dropping something or it was a flare. They all say, you know, whatever we saw was nothing, nothing normal or typical. It was something, you know, very special. And I think I believe, I think I believe them, to be honest. You, you get, when you go to Shag Harbor, you get a special kind of feeling. It just has that, if you've watched like Twin Peaks, the feeling that, David Lynch manages to capture in the fictitious town of Twin Peaks. I get a lot of that in Shag Harbor. And I think even if I didn't know about the UFO event and I ended up in Shag Harbor for some reason, you'd be like, you know, this place is a little weird. It's the kind of place where if you walked off into the woods or something, you'd probably find some really interesting things. I don't know. It just, it has this kind of magic about it. And I think if, if, extraterrestrial life if you believe in that sort of thing if they were going to touch down on earth and get up to something you know shag harbor would be a pretty uh pretty ideal spot to do it it's beautiful there the people are are real pure hearted and it's just a a special uh, a special place and the shag harbor event is a special event and i think um the only reason it's not spoken about like like Roswell is simply because it happened in Canada and a lot of fascinating stuff happens in Canada but for whatever reason it just doesn't make itself known across the border it kind of stays here and Shag Harbor is kind of like our little secret I think for the Canadian UFO enthusiasts it's fascinating the government was involved and investigated there's the researchers who who 
most closely followed this, like Chris Stiles and Don Ledger. They did an amazing job, and, and they shared their work in a, a series of books. There's a book called Dark Object that I can't recommend enough. It's um, written by Chris Stiles and Don Ledger, who are the, the two main researchers, I guess, that brought this story into the public eye. Um, and it was ish, and it was published on Whitley Strieber's um, pre, um, book publishing company he had at one point. I don't know if he still does, but uh, the book's amazing, and it and it tells the story in way more detail than I ever could, or your episode likely will be able to. But um, but yeah, Shag Harbor is one of the fascinating stories that Canadians share, but people beyond Canada may not know about. Anyway, Ryan, I hope uh, you get down to the Shag Harbor Festival. In fact, I think you were supposed to be here this week or this year, and the coronavirus um, put a stop to it. So hopefully next year you can make it. And um, if you do, drinks are on me, buddy. Thanks a lot. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.